Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Alfredo Apolloni. We're at Apolloni Vineyards in Forest Grove. It's July 30th, 2020. Alfredo, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first, first question and most important question for our purpose is why wine? Well, uh, it was a little bit of a road to wine, but I did, um, I did grow up on uh, family vineyard and winery in Italy as a kid and uh, must have gotten into the blood somehow, the dust or the soil or the, the grapes. Uh, and it was a beautiful spot and kind of tuned me into the, the beautiful places where wine is grown. Um, so after a detour through some, some other things, uh, really wanted to get back to that and, and really share it with my kids, honestly. So let's talk about the, the detours. Well, before we do that, let's talk about, you mentioned family involvement. Tell me about the, about the space about where you grew up and about your family's wine and vineyard and winery. So my family had a vineyard and winery that was uh, in the family for many generations, seven generations, um, almost 200 years now. Um, which of course in Italy is like the new guys. Uh, uh, but uh, it was a beautiful spot right on the Adriatic coast, um, about uh, 90 miles south of Venice. Um, in those hills, the coastal hills, it's in some ways kind of similar to, to the Oregon geography where the water is down low and then you pretty rapidly go up some, some hills and the, the agricultural land and the vineyard land is up higher there and it's a little moderated by that, that elevation difference. Um, it is, of course, warmer than here. <laughs> and and uh, so, you, so just a family, multiple generations, just kind of expected of the next person to take it over kind of idea? Or? For sure, there was some of that expectation. Um, my father was Italian, my mother was American from the US. Um, uh, and uh, uh, we spent, obviously, the time growing up, and then we moved to the US in 1976. So now quite a long time ago, but we would always go back and spend the summers and the harvest and the growing seasons there. Um, so there was sort of that, that decision point at some point um, where uh, it was asked, you know, do you want to take this over? And foolishly, or maybe not foolishly, whatever at that time, pretty young and said, no, we want to, I want to do something different. Mm -hmm. I, I want to take it in a different direction. And these are, you know, I mean, this is agriculture and farming and Italy and you got to be there. There's no, you're not going to do this remotely and phone in or Zoom or something else. So it was all or nothing. You're going to either go there and be there all the time. And at around 20, I, I just wasn't really ready to, mm -hmm. to make that commitment. Uh, uh, and I don't have regrets about it. Uh, my, my aunt still has that property. We go back. Um, folks are doing good things there. Uh, it's going to have a future. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of, uh, and we're super excited to be in Oregon, uh, where we started from scratch. So when you decided not to pursue wine at first, what did you do instead? So I took a detour through engineering. I, I really enjoyed engineering. I went to um, um, undergrad and grad school for, for mechanical and electrical engineering. I uh, got to work on a lot of new product development. Uh, and, and to be honest, I uh, kept doing that for a while even after we started the vineyard here uh, to help get it established and get it started. Uh, you know, inevitably they say that it's a couple of generations before a vineyard and a winery is self-sustaining and it's pretty true. I mean, you know, you might be able to make it into a generation, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's capital intensive and there's a lot of investment, a lot of inventory. and. Um, and building a brand is not is not trivial. I mean, honestly, I didn't know it at the beginning, but I would say that's actually the hardest part of the of the of the wine journey. Mm -hmm. So after that, what uh, what did you do after engineering? What 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 brought you, I guess, to Oregon and, and, and into wine? Yeah, I, the um, I think the real critical catalyst was um, after getting married. We we we. Uh, uh, got pregnant pretty pretty reasonably quickly and 
Uh, we're excited about that, and it, it caused some reflection on, um, you know, I'm proud of the engineering work that I've done, but I really wanted my kids to have this vineyard agricultural experience that I had had growing up. It was super valuable to me, and it sort of framed a lot of my uh, maybe core values even. Um, and it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult experience to have in a city or or in an urban mm -hmm. urban environment. Um, so we had some good friends in Oregon. We had some friends in the wine industry in Oregon. I I actually went back to UC Davis and and studied for uh, viticulture and enology, um, and then started looking. Uh, but we had this tie to here, and it's an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, it reminds me actually kind of a lot of Italy in some sort of aspects of it. We have these rolling hills the filberts, hazelnuts, uh, um, and uh, uh, some of the evergreen and forest areas like in Tuscany. So uh, it really, uh, it resonated. Um, and I have to say, you know, of the New World wine regions, in terms of at least the geography and the aesthetic of it, it's one of the ones that's most similar in, in uh, North America, because so many of them are in the desert. And, and that's just not, not like what the old world wine regions are like. Um, not that they don't make great wine in the desert, uh, but it's a different look and feel and, and, and lifestyle, honestly. So as you're, as you're kind of zeroing in on Oregon, tell me about, about taking the leap and fi finding the space and what it was that appealed to you about where you are now. Um, so it was a little bit of a leap. I, I think it was easier for me. My, my wife, who's been a very willing and, and helpful partner in this whole process, Lorene, uh, I think at first she thought I was joking. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're pregnant, our, our kid is coming along, and I said, well, we, we gotta go look for a vineyard now. It's, it's that time. It, it's time to bring the family into, into the uh, traditional family business. Um, and so we started looking in different spots in the country. Um, and I, I do believe either she thought it was a joke or a, or a retirement plan, maybe like, Oh, 20 years from now, when we retire, we'll go live in the country and, and do this. Um, but we looked around and we found, uh, we found this spot. I mean, we actually looked in, in a number of different places. We looked in um, California, outside of Sacramento, pretty dry, pretty far remote spots um, to get to affordable places because the land is so expensive there. We looked a little bit in, in Washington. Um, there you really are in the pure desert. Mm -hmm. um, which is um, fantastic red wines, but but uh, not green, uh, and and not the not really the the agriculture that I grew up with, which was dry farming and pretty pretty uh, old old world old school, um, and um, and then like I said, we had these friends here, um, so that was a good draw, and we found a beautiful spot here up in kind of the very north end of the Willamette Valley. Uh, there are some some old and historic vineyards up here, but there's nowhere near the density that is down in um, McMinnville and, and Yamhill and, and, and these other areas. Uh, and funnily, yeah, I mean, that appealed, right? Uh, you feel like you're a thousand miles away from, <laughs> from anything, but you're 30 miles from Portland or, or McMinnville or any of these places. So... Uh, and it has a, a really lovely heritage of uh, fine, really exceptional Pinot Noir heritage. Mm -hmm. So as you, as you saw the spot, what, what appealed to you about this specific area, about this specific land? Um, so we are in a unique uh, little spot and um, we're probably in the most northern and western corner of the Willamette Valley, um, which is kind of cool, you know, to have the most northern and western vineyard. Uh, and we just actually got a, an AVA recognized for this area, this most northern sort of 15 mile slice mm -hmm. of the valley called Tualatin Hills. Um, but as I said, the, there was a heritage of, of vineyards that have been here for 50 years or more actually. The David Hill uh, Vineyard is, has been there for uh, more than 100 years mm -hmm. uh, and of uh, producing great wines. And, and really, I mean, you do sort of stand on the shoulders of your predecessors in this industry. It's 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 People say we started from scratch, and we started from scratch planting grapevines, right? But, but we relied on the work that other folks had done, identifying the best grape varietals for this area, finding the soils that produce really good wine, uh, world-class Pinot Noir. 
So these Lorewood soils, this little corner um, was, was demonstrated, was proven, let's say, by, by the, the folks that had been here before. Um, and, um, and we do have this unique sort of geography. We're just in the foothills of the coastal as you come over this first foothill of the coastal as you come into the vineyard and winery here. Um, but right behind us, kind of behind me over my shoulder, are the coastal mountains, and they're big. They're mm -hmm. three, 4,000 feet. Uh, it's a big ridge. Uh, provides a lot of shelter and protection for um, these vineyards. Uh, really critically important around harvest time. So it's a rain shadow and also a climate shadow um, that keeps it a little more temperate uh, mm -hmm. here. And then just to the south of us is Shehala Mountain and that's, that's sort of another big blocker. So we're kind of in a, like a little pool pocket uh, of the pool <laughs> table that's protected from uh, all of the weather, uh, which like I said, is super, super critical September, October, when it can get wet and rainy and, or, or even hot and windy, you know, in certain parts of the valley. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little cooler, a little more temperate, we pick later. I think it's getting more and more important as it's getting hotter and hotter. <laughs> as it's getting, um, not that that there still isn't great Pinot Noir coming from warmer spots, but uh, in terms of maybe a little more old world style, we're, mm -hmm. we're able to, I think, hold that a little longer. So I want to get back to the. I want to get back to kind of the creation of of, of the business. But I'm curious about your impressions of Oregon wine the industry as you entered into it? What were your kind of your first impressions of Oregon's industry? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I, I honestly loved about the industry and was super attractive to me was the collaborative culture. Um, and that's something that has persisted and we, we really value and we hope we can maintain going forward. It's becoming a bigger industry and, and like big players are coming into it, but I'm, I'm really encouraged by how they've sort of adopted this, and I'd like to say Oregon culture, but I'm sure they have the, the culture too, but of collaborative sharing, working together towards a common goal, uh, improving, and, and to me, I really think this is part of the reason that Oregon has excelled uh, over such a short period of time. This is a wine region that over the last 50 years became world-renowned, regarded Pinot Noir region. California has done that as well. Um, but if you ask folks in, in Italy in the 70s when I was a kid, what do you think about wine from Oregon? <laughs> well, maybe in a thousand years, 200 years, 500 years, they'll figure something out, they'll, they'll do fine. But um, that, that in 50 years they could, they could rise to that is, is a tribute to really sort of this working together, this open culture. And, and I'm not saying that the culture in Italy isn't open, right? There's quite a bit of sharing and development, and, but there's also 2,000 years of history. And so if you go to somebody and say, well, you know, I'm thinking about uh, using oak barrels on my Nebbiolo, they're going to be like, you're insane. That's not how it's done. That, that's absolutely wrong. Uh, and, and it was like that. And there was like a whole revolution in, in the Piedmont about using French oak. And, uh, in, in bigger quantities and kind of moving away from the traditions. Um, and so that, that, that heritage and tradition is wonderful and it's, it's a powerful, but it's also an impediment sometimes and can hold you back. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was super attractive and probably one of the, you know, just sort of this smaller scale, open, uh, and it's still here, right? You come out to the winery, you'll see the winemakers, you'll see the owners, the scale is different. It's a I don't want to say like it's folksy because they're actually very professional big people here, but <laughs> it's it's different. It's a little culturally different. So you found you found your spot here. You you decided this is where you're gonna you're gonna put. So tell me about the initial steps of starting Apolloni and what would and and what kind of your initial kind of goals or or vision of the future was. Well, I mean, we definitely started with the grapevines, and that you know I I had grown up with which is very typical, of course, of Italy, that, that you're totally vertically integrated. They're, you know, the, you do everything, you, you grow the grapes, you'd never trust anyone else to grow the grapes, which, you know, ultimately we actually uh, are almost all estate, but we've worked with some other folks' grapes and it's, it's, a, it's a different philosophy here, right? The, the idea that you might bring in some grapes from a fantastically famous other vineyard is very common. Uh, and. Uh, but uh, of course in the old world we never would have trusted anyone to do that. So, so the first step, you have to plant grapes, step one. 
that's five, six, seven years until you're in production. Um, so we, we, we started in 99, started with an acre and a half of Pinot Noir, sort of test block, a little few rows of Pinot Gris, um, and uh, uh, then did a second acre and a half, then another uh, two acre block, and, and sort of step by step and tiny, tiny little steps, uh, explored different aspects of these sites. Um, uh, we started with sort of a west-facing block, and then we went to an east-facing block, and then a south-facing block. Um, you know, at that time, it was definitely cooler here. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking for um, sort of that magic recipe that was gonna consistently get you something great. Um, and harvest times were later. We were picking sometimes in November. Uh, it was wet. Um, it made me sort of question things at one moment. 2007 was a really wet vintage, and um, you know we were finally getting into some fairly significant uh, production at that time. And like, it never rains in Italy at harvest. I mean, we're harvesting in August, some maybe September, um, and uh, and here we were. It rained for a month straight, and it just never stopped. Um, so, but to be honest, I mean, those wines from 2007 are some of the I'm most proud of. Mm -hmm. um, they were difficult, they were difficult to make. We, we really um, learned a lot. We invested a lot of time and effort into them and, and they ended up being beautiful. Um, and they were cool climate and elegant and long lasting and just super, super cool. So you mentioned uh, that you went, to, you went to, once you decided this was gonna be something you wanted to do, you went back to UC Davis. Uh, I'm curious about learning what, you needed, what did you need to learn about viticulture and, and enology and, and what was maybe specific to Oregon that you kind of had to learn along the way? Well, I mean, I think there is a lot specific to Oregon and, and of course UC Davis is in California, <laughs> so they're probably a little more focused on, on, on what, they're undoubtedly more focused on what, what their world is. So, so the beauty of these schools here like uh, Enfield and Schmeckada that are really focused on Oregon. Um, I, I think is, is pretty special and, and that's something that I think will add a lot of value to our industry over time and, and Oregon State as well, you know, in terms of and are things that we support hugely. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, I had grown up with it, but not in an academic sense, you know, so I, I didn't go to school, I went to school for engineering, I, I took some science classes, but I did not take enology classes or, um, and then of course the, the Italian traditions are, are, are wonderful, but they're pretty prescriptive, right? You know, this is how we do the wine, this is how long we age it, this is, you know, and and although there's plenty of science now and, and the, the it, Italian kids working in, in the industry are super smart and have gone to school, um, historically it was more based on, you know, we've done it this way for 500 years, it, it works pretty well. Um, this is the regional and house style and that's what we do. And, and we don't deviate too far from that. Um, and if you do, you're, you know, thrown out of the family. Um, <laughs> maybe not that extreme, but, but certainly there's, there's, there's pushback, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, there's a lot of tradition and there's a lot of value in tradition. Um, so going to school for some of the academic um, science, um, the best science, the best, most current science, um, the, the, Viticulture. Now, again, like I said, the UC Davis experience, I think, is is definitely more tailored to a warmer climate, warmer climate varietals, uh, winemaking for those regions. And so, there, after coming here, there definitely was some learning, and again, tremendous support from the local community of winemakers and and owners in sharing that knowledge mm -hmm. and saying, hey, you know, we don't do that. We, we don't have to add 150 parts per million of sulfur here because it's just not that hot. And we're not fighting those kind of bacterial loads and super high pHs that, that you would have in Italy maybe or, or in California. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so lots of, lots of real specific, and then of course the methodology. I mean, the scale here is very small. Um, almost everything is done in small open top fermenters. This is different from Italy for sure, and, and California for the most part. I mean, not, you know, anywhere you go, you'll find somebody that's doing it uh, this way maybe, mm -hmm. but but in general, the approach is different. Uh, you know, most, most red wine making in Italy is done in closed tanks. Mm -hmm. So as, as you start, you're, you're, the, you're the viticulturist first, and then eventually you have to, you're making the wine. So tell me about 
first experience as a winemaker? What, what, what? Uh, again, what did you not know yet? What was, what were some of the kind of challenges to getting wine started, getting wine made? Um, we, we, st our first, we, we built the winery in two thousand and four, um, and we, we didn't. Um, our first harvest, let's say, of, of any quantity was uh, two thousand and two. And so we had to share space for those those first vintages, and those were really custom crush, um, sort of collaborative uh, projects. Uh, so there's an awful lot of learning in that process. Uh, so the first one we did down at uh, De Ponte uh, in Dundee, um, and uh, and then the second one we did up here at Tualatin Hills Estate, which is now um, part of Willamette Valley mm -hmm, Vineyards. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, once it was up here, it was much closer, and we were able to have more hands-on. Um, but it was a facility that was operated, uh, and so uh, we're basically sort of setting the parameters of how the wine is made. But 2004 is the first time we brought wine into our facility, and I have to say I have a little nostalgia for it. I mean, it was tiny, the quantities were tiny, you know, you're talking three or four fermenters, um, one ton, a uh, lot, uh, a little bit of white wine, and so you know, you can really put the love into that kind of scale. Um, oh, All right. rolling whenever you're ready. Right on. So yeah, so right at the beginning, 2004, 2005, our first vintages, um, uh, we had um, we had some consulting help uh, from a real good friend of mine, Ann Hubach, who's now doing her own her own thing, mm -hmm. um, and having great success with Heliotara there. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just me and my wife and kind of like doing it all. And of course we couldn't possibly do that now because we're making maybe seven, 8,000 cases of wine and that's 50 plus fermenters and you know, big tanks. And uh, you know, of course it's exciting to see that growth and it's exciting to, um, um, and, and we're still, you know, working in small fermenters and touching basically every grape that come, mm -hmm. comes in and out. It's a little more frenetic and chaotic at times, but uh, but it's the same uh, basic basic principles. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we definitely brought some sort of old world traditions. Uh, we're we're comfortable maybe aging stuff a little longer than was typical here, both in the barrels and afterwards, uh, and in the bottles. Um, and and I think that's a unique, a little bit unique to our mm -hmm. style uh, of wine. In addition to that, you're obviously you're you're making wines that you're not necessarily growing here. You're making some uh, some big Italian varietals. So tell me about the process of that, to finding places that are making growing the grapes you want, and of making those wines as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think honestly, at the beginning, it was it was um, it wasn't easy to to make that decision to bring in grapes from another vineyard. As I said, you know, culturally, this was like almost wrong, right? <laughs> um, you know, if you don't grow it, then, you know, you have very little business. But, but I really, I mean, I grew up with Sangiovese in our family vineyards um, and, uh, and some of the other fantastic Italian varietals. And we're super fortunate to be within driving distance of some of the most famous vineyards in the country um, that are producing uh, tremendous Sangiovese and um, and Nebbiolo and other varietals. Now, I, they are new world versions of these varietals. So, I mean, and, and I think that's always the case. Your, your wine sort of takes a stamp of the place and the, the place uh, um, is different. It, you know, it, it's, it's not Tuscany in Walla Walla. Uh, it's Walla Walla. Um, and, um, but, but we had the opportunity to work with these fantastic grapes. We, we obviously through connections here, uh, worked with some of the folks at Canis Feast, um, they had brought in uh, the Nebbiolo clone of Sangiovese to, uh, to Washington. Uh, we worked a little bit with them on that. Um, and, uh, and then I ultimately planted it here in the Willamette Valley. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's exciting. So we planted some, some, some Sangiovese and Nebbiolo in, in our estate vineyards here. Um, and it, that's definitely experimental. Uh, <laughs> But we've also produced some pretty nice wines mm -hmm. from that. And, you know, we talked, I talked a little bit earlier about it's getting warmer here. I think there are lots of folks experimenting. Pinot Noir is, is our top grape, and it's our consistently best top grape. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think there's actually a lot of headroom for, you know, like I said, when we started, uh, it was kind of a little bit marginal here for Pinot Noir in some vintages. Uh, picking November was a, kind of a nail biter. Um, and we had ice on the frost on the grapes when we were picking them sometimes. This is, this is again, you know, like, like yeah, reserved for Germany usually <laughs> or, 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 or Canada. Um, but we were waiting, waiting so late in the season to try to get that last little bit of, of ripening. Um, and and uh, so, so much of the early philosophy of Oregon was to find the warmest spots, uh, find the most south-facing hillsides at just the right uh, mm -hmm. elevations, bring in clones that ripen earlier, rootstocks that push earlier, all of these things to sort of get you the quickest uh, uh, time to, to ripeness. Um, and so there's a lot of room to, to sort of dial that back and say, oh, well, we can just leave a little more canopy. We can, we can find spots that are uh, less full south, uh, maybe a little higher elevation for the north. Um, but anyway, uh, so, so, but uh, the, the interest in, in Sangiovese um, took us originally to Washington. Uh, we planted here in 2007. Um, again, we, 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 in that same time, frame is when we first brought in some grapes from Washington, really to build some new world experience with mm -hmm. those Italian varietals before our estate plantings came online. And so we had the opportunity to work with some great vine vineyards, Sail uh, de Cheval, Prepper Bridge, um, you know, really cool stuff and, and talked to some really fantastic producers there. You mentioned the, the growth and the size you are now versus versus starting. Was that was that always the plan to, to grow uh, th that to that rate? Were you always sort of hoping to be a, a larger winery for Oregon? I, I mean, I'd love to say that we had this master plan and and uh, we just executed exactly to it. I mean, we we we, um, we certainly thought we would be 15 or 20 acres. Uh, I mean, we have two sites and and uh, they're they're almost 100 acres altogether. So there was a lot of land to plant. Uh, and uh, a lot of hazelnuts to take out. Um, but, you know, I mean, the scale, I think, is something that you sort of land in, and I think the real challenge in the wine industry, and it still is today, is, of, of course, you know, if you're building a brand, is to find the right scale that you can sell your wine, um, make a living, cover your costs, um, and, I'm not sure that 8,000 cases is exactly that right number, but it works more or less for us <laughs> at this time. Uh, I, there's certainly a lot of guys that are much smaller and are, are able to make it work. Um, I think if you're, you're at that small scale, you have to almost sell everything directly to the consumer. Um, we wanted a little more reach. Um, you know, we, we really grew up, I grew up in a culture where um, Wine was consumed daily, and it wasn't ridiculously expensive, and um, was something that was delicious, but was widely shared. Uh, and always wanted to sort of achieve that. And to achieve that, you do have to have some scale. I mean, you don't have to be huge, but I don't think you can be tiny mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. uh, when you built the winery space, did you have the notion of, of serving as kind of custom crushes? You have this notion of, of being more than producing more than just what you're producing for your own brand um we definitely did and and we we've had a lot of brands start here and and grow up and move on and and that's pretty cool i mean it's it's neat to be a part of that maybe share a little bit in that success um, but it's also a way to there's a huge amount of fixed cost in a in a winery and and you have to find a way to sh to, to spread that cost out um, and so the so many of the oregon startups either custom crush somewhere else at the beginning, and that's really what we did, or, or um, build a facility and find some folks to share it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we did both. Uh, <laughs> we custom crushed somewhere else at the very beginning when our quantities were a barrel or two, and then, and then when we got to uh, six, six or eight barrels, we, we built a facility um, that was pretty Spartan and, and found some folks to share it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, and that's been a great model, and it's been a, a fun way to learn, play with things that we wouldn't otherwise, you know, um, just varietals and techniques and things, uh, you know, that uh, you'd like to, uh, you know, from a winemaking perspective, you'd like to do everything. That is the worst business plan in the world uh, because you get diluted in your focus of selling and, and uh, the story that you're telling your customer, 
but uh, the beauty of, of sharing a facility is you sort of get the best of both, best of both worlds. You get, mm -hmm. to, you get to taste a little bit of what's it like to make a port or, uh, you know, uh, German varietals or, you know, but Alfredo, you got no business making German varietals, okay? <laughs> so. A little bit of vicariousness. Vicarious yeah, I, like, I like right, that. Right. I like that. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, the, the kind of tradition you grew up in was like a was dry farm grapes. So tell, tell me about implementing the vineyard here and, and sort of developing your vineyard philosophy and, and, and has it changed? Has how you grow grapes in Oregon changed since you started growing? Um, I think it's changed a little bit. I mean, you know, in, in terms of Italy, they had a, a long history and tradition there, right? So they, they had that, that space pretty well dialed. Um, and, um, you know, I think on the surface of it, if you looked at some of those places where we, even where we were in the Adriatic Coast area, you would say, gosh, it's awful hot. It seems pretty dry here. Um, are you sure these grapes are going to make it? Yeah, they, they've been doing it for a thousand years and they're just fine. Uh, and, and grapes are pretty hardy and, and tolerant of, uh, drought stress. Um, now we do it's cooler and it's a little wetter here. So from that perspective, there was never really much concern. And so many other people are dry farming in Oregon mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't too much concern that, that it wasn't gonna be viable. Um, of course, you're learning from the site and you're learning from the rootstocks and the, the vine placement and density and all these things. And um, we started with a lot of experiments and then we kind of narrowed into what we found worked, worked pretty well. Um, and, and I'm sure over, over time we'll make further adjustments mm -hmm. um, as well. But we're really fortunate. I mean, we have a fantastic climate. Um, and uh, we're, we're running an all-organic program here. Um, and like, again, many others. I mean, I think there's a lot of care for the environment and the sustainability and the generational sustainability in Oregon. Um, but we're blessed that our summers are near droughts that our relative humidities are low, even though it's hot today, it's it's pretty dry, and so we're reasonably comfortable, um, and that that relieves a lot of the difficult stress pressures, pest pressures uh, from the grapevine. So we don't have powdery mildew. Oh, but we do, of course, have powdery mildew. I'm sorry, but we don't have downy mildew, which is a big European problem, and, and problems in other parts of the U.S. Not not so much the West Coast. Um, and and we're we're very fortunate on the insect pest side and, and other things. So I'm I'm curious about your site and as, as you, you've had time to learn it, uh, how do you describe the the terroir here and and what makes it unique? I, obviously, you mentioned the, the the weather uniqueness here. What else about what you're growing here is is unique and and maybe descriptive of Apolloni? So, I mean, and, and I think you know, like like I said, we we just we just went through the process. It was kind of a long process of five years of, uh, of applying and, and getting an American Viticultural AVA for this most northern sub-area mm -hmm. of the Willamette Valley. Um, and so I think there are unique things to this site, this particular site, and then unique things to that area. Um, and, and so I, I guess I'd like to talk about the common things first, right? So most of the grapes up in this northern part are planted on Laurelwood family soils. Mm -hmm. Um, which are low soils that were blown in uh, contemporaneous with the Missoula flood period. Um, they're very deep. Uh, they have pretty much a Goldilocks um, water holding drainage, um, which is very important in grapevines. They, they, they don't want to be too wet and they can't be completely dry, <laughs> especially if you want to dry farm them. So, and, and you want your, you, if you're going to dry farm them, you'd like your roots to be able to go pretty deep so mm -hmm. they can pull water when they need to, um, when it is July and August and we haven't had rain at all over those months. Um, so that is where we are right here. Uh, so we have uh, an orange golden soil that um, we dug a barrel cave over here just like the family barrel caves in Italy. Uh, and at the back of it we were, gosh, I don't know, 40 feet down into the hillside and you have this perfectly uniform strata of orange golden uh, and it's actually the color that the, the building is. So that, that's what the soil looks like. And um, allows the grape roots to go very deep and the vines were there. So we could see these little tiny, little hair-like feeder roots reaching way down into the, into the hillside to pull water up. Uh, 
and feed themselves and, and express the, the, the place. Um, and then also we talked about the temperateness. It's a little bit cooler. I think the soil and the climate allow us to allow us to get a Pinot Noir that is a little bit more old worldly. I'm not gonna say it's anything else. It's Oregon, right? It's our place. But it has some characteristics that I think are unique. Um, some earthiness, some spiciness, some tension uh, where we'll get fruit and acid, where we'll get spice and earthiness. Um, and I think that's really cool. Uh, it's, it's not the warmest place in the world, so we're not the most big and hugely opulent. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we can be a little tighter and a little leaner sometimes. Um, but, you know, we've also had some pretty big vintages like 2016, 2018, where there's a lot of expression in those wines. Um, and, and there's, there, like I said, there, there's both of these characteristics, which if you can get them, wow. I mean, gosh, that's, that's almost the holy grail for us. You know, we've got uh, perfume and fruit uh, and, and all of these qualities. So, exciting spot. Well, I'm curious about how that sort of ties into your, your winemaking philosophy and, and how it's developed. So you have this cool spot and all these unique characteristics. So what is your winemaking philosophy and how does it sort of carry forward from the vineyard? Well, I think it's evolved a little bit over time. Um, you know, we, we've definitely taken a little bit of a traditionalist, relatively low manipulation, but, but hands-on approach to our winemaking. Um, it was cooler when we started and so I think we worked harder at the beginning to extract more um, now we're almost backing away from that as as the, the vintages are getting warmer the grapes are coming with thicker skins they're giving more by themselves um, so we're not having to work quite as hard to extract the last little bit of tannin and um, from the from the grapes themselves uh, and and we've enjoyed that so we're doing more whole cluster and we really like what that is uh, and you know is that a traditional thing sure absolutely at one time all wines were whole cluster that we didn't have distemmers um, but we started distemming everything really working at hard on the punch downs two three four really vigorous punch downs a day and now we're kind of scaling it back and and also appreciating the elegance of our site right um, you know you get a feel for what your wines are and what they aren't and ours will never be the biggest wines in the Willamette Valley but they can be very elegant they can have lots of flavor um, and they don't have to be a bruiser in terms of adaptation that's that's a you know you talk about working working harder and then kind of pulling back is that something you're doing consciously or is that just a purely a reaction to the fruit you're seeing? I, I think a little bit of it is experimental, you know, and a little bit is um, sort of finding your, your way and your place. Um, and a little bit is what is the expectation for wines, right? Uh, new world expectations are pretty big and fruity. Old world expectations are quite different. You know, those, those wines uh, can be very lean uh, and quite light um, and so you know drawing on some of that experience and 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 just saying well you know these are these are this is a, a, a nice way to make wine um, and and you know getting comfortable maybe within your skin and, and that uh, uh, is maybe a little bit of maturation on, on the on the winemakers side right And speaking of winemakers, obviously you've added to the team as you've grown. So we, we met Kevin earlier as your winemaker. Now tell me about what you've looked for over the years and when you're adding to the winemaking team and, and how you kind of blend what you want with, with maybe their skill set and their, their history. Well, we're very fortunate to have Kevin, uh, who brings a tremendous experience. And you, you talked to him, so you, you know that. Um, I think for me, um, the most important part of the team is is um, that we all work together and enjoy doing it, and uh, relatively low drama um, uh, and diligent diligent way. And, and Kevin brings all of that and more. Um, 
you know, we've had some different folks over the years and I've, I've enjoyed working with all of them. But Kevin's been here for a long time and started as assistant winemaker and, and now is, is, is winemaker with me um, and has done tremendously well. Uh, very attentive to detail. Um, and and it's, it's nice to have a diversity of experiences and Kevin's experiences are definitely different than mine. Um, uh, some overlap in experiences and 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 different sort of skill sets. Uh, you know, I, I tend to be a little bit more like an organic winemaker, and I don't mean in like the organic sense of the. Yes, the grapes are organic, but I grew up with it. You sort of just feel your way through, uh, and and although Kevin certainly does that, he is, you know, meticulous on the testing and the measurement and the trials and uh, and I think that's a good it's a it's a good marriage honestly uh, to have those skill sets together and you know I, I did work in the technical field for a long time so I appreciate those skills and I do have them but I my approach to wine because I grew up with it is a little different you mm -hmm. know it's more like well this seems right <laughs> let's do this um, uh, as opposed to let's run all the numbers and, and see exactly where, where, we're, where we're sitting at when it comes to actually putting that into practice, I imagine there must be some challenges between the kind of meticulousness and, and like you say, more organic side. How do you find your roles and, and make that kind of the blend, I guess, work well? Um, I think just by working together over time, you know, at, at, at yes, undoubtedly there's some moments where you, you kind of get, one will get stressed out or the other, and, and uh, but, uh, you know, having worked now for many years, uh, we found a good balance. and. Don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to running <laughs> a lot of numbers. I, I think that's great and it's a great tool and it is a tool and, and you, um, you know, that's, that's the advancement of what we've brought in science to winemaking. Uh, but it's also an art and I think people appreciate that and, and, I, and I know Kevin does too. I mean, you know, he does a lot of things that are pretty, you know, just go on the feel. Uh, um, so, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's an adaptable and, and flexible um, in, in that regard. So someone drinks a bottle or tries some of your wine for the first time, what's, what's the ultimate kind of reaction for you? What would you like them to get from, from your wine when they're trying it for the first time? What's the ultimate response they could give you from that? Well, I have to say that our wines are definitely kind of philosophically food wines, right? So. Um, and, and I mean, we have an interesting wine culture in the U.S., right? In, in the old world, wines were part of meals. Uh, certainly where I, where I was, you know, I, I suppose in different regions you might have different. Um, here we tend to sometimes drink wine as like a, an, like a cocktail, like, like an aperitivo, uh, where it's just wine. Uh, and, and I think wines that are made for for one setting or another are going to be different. Uh, and honestly, I think we've adapted our winemaking a little bit, um, recognizing that this exists. So we, we, we have some wines that are more, more meant to be just enjoyed as a glass of wine with nothing else. But our, our core Apolloni, you know, heritage has been this wine that, that is for food, right? So on its own, it might be a little challenging, um, but we do hope that when you do have it at that meal, it's just an amazing experience. and really brings out the better of the food and the wine uh, and that the, the pairings when that happens can be really exceptional. Um, uh, and uh, also that, that there are wines that are approachable, you know, sort of uh, economically approachable. We actually make quite a bit of white wine, which is not all that typical necessarily for, for the average wine producer mm -hmm. in Oregon. Um, and. I think that is a little bit of my heritage growing up. There was a lot of white wine and red wine produced in our region. Um, they had their place for food, you know, it was a seafood area, so so you're drinking quite a bit of white wine. Um, and um, and so we, we, we brought that here. And, and that's not always, you know, we're so Pinot-centric, Pinot Noir-centric here, um, that often, you know, well, we make Pinot Noir and we make these, three bottles of Pinot Gris because we need something in the tasting room. Um, but but here our mix is almost 50-50 and so we're making quite a bit of white wine um, and 
and honestly, white wine is more affordable. Um, so, so we're able to get it to more people. Uh, and I think that in the grocery store, we've had a great following for uh, for, for our whites, um, and and restaurants and other places as well. But um, they're not terrible expensive. They're maybe fifteen or so dollars on the on the grocery store shelf. Let's talk about selling wine. It's always an interesting topic, I think, especially when you're when you're kind of getting started. I'm curious. Uh, you you are out here. You're very north and very west, a little bit away from the the bustle, as you mentioned. Uh, how did you find a following in the early days? What was your kind of your strategy to selling wine, and, and what have you found is is the the most successful way to sell your wine? Well, I think we we're very fortunate to be supported. You know, I mean. Um, Portland and Oregon, they, there's a lot of loyalty to our local wine, which is, which is fantastic and really helps people get, get going. Um, whether it's at the stores or the restaurants or, or the tasting rooms, all of those places. Uh, I think most people, when they first get started, you know, they're basically hand selling every bottle and uh, uh, whether it's directly to a consumer or, or directly to a restaurant. Um, and like I said, we, we got tremendous support and that was really, really cool. Um, those first bottles of wine, I mean, you're selling them for whatever you're selling them, but they cost, I don't know, you know, if you really worked it out, it's like probably $1,000 a bottle <laughs> or something. And, and that's, that's simply un, untenable, right? So, but, but most folks, when they start, I mean, focus on Pinot Noir because they can get a little bit more dollar per bottle. And they're probably not inexpensive, you know, they're, they're 30 and up. Um, and, and we did want to maintain some affordability. so. So that was a challenge, and we, we needed to get to a certain amount of scale to, to be able to, to deliver that and deliver it in a sustainable way. But, but like I said, we, we got tremendous support from, from local retailers. Um, we started the tasting room here 2005, so very shortly after we, we, we built um, as sort of an ancillary to our production activity. And, and we're, we're not in the heart of the wine region, but we're in a busy tourist area, so we get a lot of visitors, and, and that's really built over time. Uh, and it's really important to us, so still a big part of our sales are, are from that. You talked earlier about the kind of generational aspect of this business and, and it not even not even necessarily being viable for, for generations to come. I'm, I'm curious, obviously the family name's important to you. Uh, the, the, this is, you're thinking of this as a long-term business. Tell me about how that kind of how that translates to what you've done so far and kind of what you see for the future of, of Apolloni, uh, you know, beyond, beyond you. Well, I hope there's, there's a potential for transition. I, I know that's hard. And, and, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, sort of my decision point early on saying, you know, I don't think this is the right fit. Um, and I don't think you can force people into this. Uh, that is not a recipe for success. It's hard work. It's uh, never ending. Uh, you better really enjoy it. Um, and so, although I have three kids and I hope they're interested and maybe want to continue, I'll never push them to do that if that's not what they want to. Now, did we build something that we felt we built with the sort of a mindset that it could go on for generations? Yes, of course. I mean, when we built a barrel cave and dug it into the ground, I mean, those are, those are long-term commitments. Um, but, um, I mean, I'm excited to see generational transitions in Oregon. That's pretty cool, and, and I've gotten to meet a number of those folks. And, you know, that's a pretty rare and special thing. Um, and some of those founding folks that are still, their family still still working at, uh, at this is, um, but I've also seen, you know, others get acquired and, and they move into something else, and that, that's how it is. So we're, t we're talking to you in, in July of 2020, obviously the end of July, we're, we're still doing with, with the COVID pandemic here. I'm uh, curious how it's affected your business and, and maybe how it's affected your vision for the future of, of your business and for Oregon wine. Well, it's definitely affected our business just like everyone else's. Um, you know, it, the sales are down. Um, they're starting to pick back up, which is really encouraging. We, like I said so many times now, we got tremendous support from our, we feel like they're family, but they're our customers um, that continue to buy wine and have it shipped to them or come pick it up uh, throughout. Um, and we hope we help them get through it a little bit too. Um, but it, it's, it can't make up for, we had wine in national distribution. We had, you know, the holy grail of wine producers is to be in restaurants. 
to have a wine on a glass board by the glass in a, in a white tablecloth restaurant, and which we have so many wonderful restaurants in Portland, is is the Holy Grail um, because it's a nice experience for the customer. They're sharing that wine with the amazing meal, often something special occasion. Um, and so we were all seeking all of those restaurant placements. And the more exclusive and special your, your wine label was, the more of those you had, right? So we were lucky, we had some, but the real famous guys, a huge part of their, their business was restaurants around the nation, not just, just here, but New York and all over, California. Um, and those restaurants all closed. Uh, and reopening has been so difficult for them. It's been hard for us, but we have outside space, we're in the country, our density is pretty low. Um, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's it's certainly easier. Uh, and our customers in the restaurants, I mean, we feel hugely for them. Um, I think we're a little lucky, we talked earlier, our wines are not super, super expensive in the Oregon scheme of things. Our wines are certainly not cheap. But we had a lot of retail placements because we were under $20, and that's a category that, that moves pretty well uh, in the grocery store. And I find this interesting, right? So you'll spend $100 for a bottle of wine at a restaurant, but you go to the grocery store and it better be less than $15. <laughs> um, and, and I think there's also been some a little bit of change in, in this COVID time because people have had to cook at home, and they've, they've sort of changed their philosophies a little bit and uh, maybe have invested a little more in, in their table. Um, their home table, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but um, but it's it's challenging. It's coming back. We're reopened to the public in June, early June. Uh, we've gotten nice support with that, and um, it's it's a little more formal. And and I, I don't I don't love that. I mean, I, I think wine has a lot of formality and and maybe some stigma to it. People are uncomfortable with the stodginess of it you know oh, here's your whatever um again i grew up in italy where people drank wine all the time it came out of a pitcher sometime and it was delicious um and it was absolutely expected to be delicious mm -hmm. you know there was no you know no matter what the the, the gas station wine better be darn good um uh, because it's been there forever and if it wasn't there was a hundred other guys who were making a, a good good bottle of wine um and so the fact that we're by appointment, I mean, you can still walk in, um, but technically we're limit, so limited in seating, um, especially when the weather isn't good. You know, if the weather is good, we got a lot of space out here. Um, if the weather isn't good, we have almost no space inside. Uh, it's a production facility. Um, and, um, and so that changes the dynamic. Um, it's a seated tasting. It used to be a bar and you could sort of chit chat with folks and yeah we can talk to folks but we're wearing masks so you can hardly understand what we're saying half the time and, um, and we're handing you a rack of pre-made bottles that are all sanitized and and so it's and a piece of paper and saying here you go good luck to you <laughs> good luck to you um, which i mean it's it's still an experience you're, you're getting to try the wines but it maybe isn't the, the experience that we were used to uh, and people People have taken to it. I mean, they, they seem willing, um, so I appreciate it. Uh, but uh, we hope to be able to gradually go back to more of a, an organic, uh, natural experience. What are the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine since you've been a part of the industry? What's, what's the most different about the industry now than, than when you joined it? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, it's certainly a lot bigger. Um, when we started 20 years ago, we were, we were bonded winery number like 158. And of course the guys who had started before, 20 years before us, were bonded winery number 10 or 15, right? And so they, said, they, they already were thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> you new guys are making this place way too big. Um, now they're, you know, 800, 900 in the valley and, and probably, you know, a thousand in Oregon or more. Uh, so the industry is, is, is much bigger. Um, there's still a lot of very small folks, and, and you know, I, I would say we're kind of mid-size in, in our scale, which is mind-blowing to me. Um, but, it, but again, sort of in a global sense, we at 8,000 cases, in the world of wine, that's tiny. 
that's like a speck, <laughs> like a speck. Uh, and, and so almost all of Oregon's scale is still, even though there are many more wineries and they're getting bigger, we're 4% of the US production or less. Um, that, that bar on the bar graph is almost invisible. You know, California, Washington, and then those little tiny ones that you kind of can hardly see, New York, Oregon, uh, et cetera, down the line. But we are making fantastic wines, um, and I do think that's a tribute to sort of the, the nature of the folks here and the uh, collaborative nature that we talked about. Um, so scales changed a little bit. There are more folks. It's getting fancier. I mean, you know, this is a real thing. I mean, we're pretty isolated up here, so it's, it's still, I mean, you feel like you're in a farm vineyard here. Uh, you're pretty close to the grapevines, but you're starting to see these big tasting rooms that are not Napa, but you know, they're getting, they're getting, you know, and, and it's becoming more professional, which is great. I mean, you know, I think um, when some of the, the big producers have bought into Oregon, first of all, it's, an, it's a recognition and appreciation that this is a real and important place. Uh, but they've also brought a level of professionalism and, and scale, um, you know, marketing scale, you know, sort of the thinking processes um, that uh, as a homegrown industry, maybe, maybe we, we, um, we didn't have so much of. Mm -hmm. uh, and l let me tell you, there's still plenty of small places family owned like us that are, you know, we want to do marketing, but we're doing a hundred other things and uh, trying to squeeze it in. So what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon? What's it gonna look like in the, in the years to come? Um, I, I think we're very lucky uh, we, we're going to maintain our, our recognition for excellence, um, which is super important. You know, the, the yields in Oregon will never be the yields in warmer places. So you better make fantastic, exceptional wines. And they're going to have to be a little more expensive than, you know, in Italy we could get, I don't know, two to three times, maybe five to 10 times the yields that we can here, depending on where you are. Um, in the purest sense of it, that means that bottle of wine can cost one-tenth of what a bottle from Oregon can cost. <laughs> so we, 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 need to, we need to maintain our, our, our quality focus. Um, and there's a huge, huge tradition of that and, and commitment to it here, which is great. Um, it is getting warmer. That's going to mean we have to adapt a little bit. I think it's going to change the geography and the style of the wines, um, for sure. Um, but people worry about that sometimes. But I, I think that is just something that's going to be interesting and an opportunity for consumers and winemakers to to explore. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's certainly plenty of latitude here. What about as you look ahead for yourself and for Apolloni? Are there, are there, as you look down the, the horizon, are there things you're excited to try? Are there plans you have for the future? What, what do you kind of see the next years unfolding here? I mean, every vintage is a new wonder, right? You know, and it's different. Uh, and so that's exciting, and we look forward to that every year. Um, so we're, we're very lucky, sort of in the winemaking field. If you're, if you're uh, and you don't get that many vintages, right? You know, uh, we've been here for 20 years. It's 20 Oregon vintages. Um, hopefully we get 20 or so more and, and uh, continue to learn and make better and better wines uh, that, that people can enjoy. Um, I'm not sure we're gonna grow tremendously from where we are. I think we're pretty happy at this scale. Um, we are thinking about another barrel cave. This is pretty exciting for us. Um, and honestly, when we when we built the first one in 2012, you know, the the folks working on it said, Alfredo, do you want a provision to expand this or make another one? And I said, No, the kids will do that. <laughs> that'll that'll be for them if they want to stick with it. But we we reached a scale where we're, we're pretty full on our on our facilities, production facilities. We still have land to plant, um, but we need a sustainable market to be able to sell our wines in to support that. Uh, and we need a little more production space. Um, and so both of those are gonna be decisions that we have to take uh, going forward. And, you know, we're asking those decisions all the time. You know, how much, how much rosé should we make this year? Well, we're gonna see how sales are the rest of the summer. And, you know, with reduced restaurants and, and reduced national sales. Um, uh, and 
I'm not complaining because I know that lots of folks are in very tough situation, but this is a reality of you, you can only produce what you're going to sell. Actually, you should try to produce a little less, um, but it's hard, it's hard not to sometimes. If, uh, what would your words of wisdom be to someone who uh, wanted to join the Oregon wine industry? Uh, words of wisdom, I think it's a great industry. Uh, I think the hardest part about wine um, is not making or growing the wine. Um, that's intrinsically super satisfying and um, I'm not saying it's easy, but, but you know, you start with nothing and at the end of the year you have this beautiful crop and that there's, there's, uh, there's great intrinsic sort of positive reinforcement. Um, the marketing and the sales are the hardest part. You better, if you're really getting into it and you think you're going to make a brand and, and do that, you need to spend some time doing that. Make sure that's something that you enjoy, that you're able to do, at least at some level, because you're gonna have to. Um, and everybody has the part that they're most in love with. I, I love the vineyard and I love the winemaking and I'm willing to do the sales and marketing. Um, <laughs> But it wouldn't be my first choice, and I certainly have lots of good people to rely on to help with that. Um, uh, but it's especially at startup, it's such an important part that you 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 better um, have at least some willingness or a great partner that's willing to do it or something, um, or or it's going to be extremely hard. Mm -hmm. All right, last question for you, and we'll get a little philosophical for you. Uh, what are you in your in your estimation? What is wine's role in society? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, what I've seen is it um, is part of our get-togethers and our social interaction. Um, for me, that was always at the dinner table, but it could be at a wedding or an event uh, or just a casual get-together at the bar. and. Um, you know, in those meals, that's where we share our lives, and it's it's uh, it's where we connect uh, as human beings. And especially in this time, I mean, that's that's ever more prized because uh, it's a little harder. Because it's it's definitely harder. So, I think um, I think it's a it's just a wonderful part of of um, enjoying life. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Right on. Anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't know. I mean, we're very proud about our new uh, 12th and Hills AVA. And we I wove it in a couple of Yeah, you of did. Spots. I appreciate uh, that. Uh, uh, I know, that, I know, that it took, took quite a while. Yeah. yeah. It took, and, and I think that's normal. I mean, you know, anything with the government is a long, is a long road. Um, and um, we actually co-published with uh, Laurelwood District at the same time, which is pretty exciting. So two new uh, sub-AVAs within, within the Willamette Valley at the same time. So uh, even, even more sort of um, significant. So a uh, small contribution, hopefully, to the wine industry and to the wine consumer uh, eventually. Um, it's pretty subtle stuff. So, you know, you can certainly enjoy Oregon wine for your whole life and never worry about a sub-AVA. Uh, but if you're really into it, you can find the nuances and the specialness of places like Apolloni and other folks in our in our area and, and, and the subtle differences between here and Laurelwood soils on the Shehala Mountain, which is a little bit different climate. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's so cool. I mean, you can make a whole life out of, and huge richness out, out, of, out of wine, um, not just the, the, the experience, but sort of the where it's coming from mm -hmm. and how it's made in the beautiful places, uh, you know, which are pretty, pretty special. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm excited about some Italian varietals here in the valley. I, I know they're not, you know, certainly at this time they're not, this area is a Pinot Noir area, but we planted the first Sangiovese here and um, we're, we're excited to make those wines. I mean, it's a little bit of my heritage and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun from for the Apollonia perspective, and they're great wines. They're actually really, really nice. As you look at those, what do you see them becoming? Uh, Willamette Valley Italian varietals. Do you see that becoming a trend? Um, there's certainly lots of interest here, you know, and and it, it there's been interest in Italian wine in Portland and Oregon for forever, for a long time. Uh, it's funny when we um, we go and 
go to grocery stores. I see Italian wines here that I, I don't see anywhere else, you know, or maybe in New York, or maybe not even there, right? So there's, there's a passion for those. And there's a passion among winemakers for Italian varietals. So we have fun with that. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly not our main focus here, but it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's something that um, we've enjoyed. There's, there's interest from the consumer and there's interest from the community. And I think we can make great Italian wines here, you know, um, that are worthy of, of recognition. Or wines in the style of Italy. We make a Pinot Grigio, which is mm -hmm. an Italian style. We make a Pinot Gris, which is, I would say, an Oregon style. It's a little different than, than Pinot Gris from Alsace or somewhere else. Uh, uh, but they're two different wines. And I, anyone who tasted them would say, yeah, those, those are definitely different. Uh, and I think they have two different purposes. Yeah. I'll back up one second because you, you mentioned two Alton Hills, uh, the ABA. What is the benefit you see for that coming coming to the area? I think the benefits, you, you really have to look at a, a decades and maybe generations long perspective, right? When, when, when we first started 20 years ago, we would go in the market and other places in the Midwest and, and we'd tell people we're in the Willamette Valley and they'd ask us if that's in California. Um, and the recognition is really built for that. Uh, and, and certainly people that are into Pinot know that Willamette Valley is in Oregon and it's an exceptional place for Pinot Noir. Um, when will they know that Tualatin Hills is, is an exceptional place? I, I think that's at least a decade or a couple decades out. Other than the folks who come visit us, who have that local tie, um, and, uh, but it's fun. It's part of the adventure and the exploration. Uh, but there are also things that last for a long time. You know, you look at those DOCs in Italy, they've been there for a hundred years and they'll be there for many hundreds, probably. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today, for your hospitality here at your lovely facility. Uh, we will go ahead and let you off the hook. What a pleasure, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.